The theme for the evening is Church, Community, and Enclave Night, which is a little bit of a chunky phrase, a little bit odd, doesn't really roll off the tongue in an eloquent manner, but it's an important theme, and it's a difficult theme, and it's a task uh, falls to me this evening to try to discuss that topic in a way that's useful to you. So I'm going to do my best. And with God's grace, I won't waste your time tonight. The title of the lesson is Developing a Church Community. All right? Developing a Church Community. If you don't mind, I'd encourage you to open up your books to the book, your Bibles rather, the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. It's a small book in the Old Testament. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It's right there in front of 1 Samuel. If you'd like, and behind Judges, if you care to open up to the book of Ruth, I'd sure like you to do that. And in fact, for our opening passage, I'd like you to rise with me and in honor of the word of God, let's read from the book of Ruth. We're going to start at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 7. This is Ruth chapter number 1, 1 through 7. Are you ready? We'll read... Let's read together in unison. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of the two sons Malan and Chilion. We have fights of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died, also both of them. And the husband was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return into the land of Judah." Thank you. And now, not quite done. <laughs> if you'll drop down to verse 19, chapter 1, verse 19, let's read together to the end of the first chapter. Ready? Let's begin. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Lord hath afflicted me? Let me return, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Now you might be thinking, what in the world does the book of Ruth have to do with developing a church community? (laughs) Well, we'll be coming back to the book of Ruth here in a little while after I lay a bit of foundation for some of the, the, the thinking and the ideas that I have for you. But it really revolves around Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem is where Naomi began, and Bethlehem is where Naomi returned to. Now, setting Ruth aside for a short time, let's think for a moment. Now, all of us wonder about the future. We say to ourselves, what will next year be like? The year after that. We say to ourselves sometimes, I wonder if Jesus will return. Now, if Jesus returns quite soon, you and I really don't need a plan of life. It won't matter. If, however, Jesus does not return, then let's suppose that history turns a sharp corner and things become very difficult. Let us suppose that we enter into the time of Jacob's trouble within the next one year. Well, since it tells us that except that time be shortened, no flesh would survive, it probably doesn't matter if we do have a plan. No plans will help. We'll be under God's grace. God's grace will be about all that will help. But suppose Jesus does not return. And suppose the time of Jacob's trouble does not commence. Then we need to plan. We need to plan. In fact, let's just propose, you and I together tonight, that we consider a 25-year plan. Now, I'm picking 25 arbitrarily. You might like a five-year plan. After all, that's that's what the communists run with, so they like five-year increments. Maybe you like a five-year plan. A three-year plan, a 10-year plan, but I'm going to say a 25-year plan. So let's just project forward for a few moments because I can remember 25 years ago without too much trouble. 25 years from hence, I'll be about like Don Gibbs there. And my son Zachary, he'll be about my age. And God willing, he'll have a son whose new young wife is pregnant with their first child. I can imagine that. I don't know if my son Zachary can imagine that. It's a little hard when you're young to imagine yourself being in your 50s. (laughs) Now, if we think about a 25-year plan, what we've got to think about is how we get from here to there. Now, planning is not easy. It takes a lot of thinking. It takes ideas. It takes a certain amount of action. And then it takes a little bit of revision of your plan. And then you have to keep thinking and you have to overcome unexpected obstacles and so forth. So all this business about planning for the future is is a real challenge. Because You say, well, if I only knew what was going to happen in the future. Well, isn't that what everyone would like to know? That would make planning a snap. But, of course, you don't and you can't, so don't don't pretend that you can or should or want, even want to. That's not the point. 
The point is you make a plan. Now, as far as I can see, the wise thing to do, and this is just my humble opinion, since we don't know what the future holds, I would suggest we consider planning, imagining the next 25 years to be kind of like the past 25. Now, it may not be, it may be very different, but I don't know, and I don't know what way it might be different. But at least if I have some premise to go forward with, I can develop some kind of a plan, some kind of a future vision. Now, I'd like for you to think with me for a few moments about what I'm going to call the, the three rings of social expansion. Three institutions, or three rings of social expansion. So follow with me if you would. The first central ring is the most organic institution that God created, which is the family. Now, if a family prospers and does well... Perhaps that family can be part of the next ring of a godly social institution. We'll call that a church. Amen. And this, this is a, a congregation, an assembly of believers in which there would be from a family. We have multiple families now make up a congregation. And from a congregation, we'll go to the next level of social institution that we can call a community. And I'm going to call this community a church community. It's a church community. All right? Now, let's think about these three again. Now, when you go from a family to a church, it isn't necessarily a perfect, crisp transition from one to the other. Indeed, many congregations form from a big family. It's quite common. Many of you, if you think for a moment about congregations that you have known in the past, you'll think, you know, that, that church, that congregation formed 70 or 80 years ago, and there was a family that got big, and then it gradually, other families joined, but with that family as the kind of the root and the core it grew into a congregation of multiple families. It's a very common phenomenon. Jamie, you've spoken of that in, in your family. And I could give you several illustrations of that. It doesn't always work that way, but sometimes it does. So the transition from a family to a congregation, it's, it's not necessarily crisp lines when you move from the one to the other. And the same is true when we move from a congregation to a church community. A church community. And we need to keep these three in mind, particularly a congregation and a church community. Amen. Now, it's my task tonight to talk about this largest ring. All right? So, we've heard, we routinely hear many sermons about the importance of the family. And when, when the family is not doing well, then the con a congregation cannot do well. And if, if you don't have a congregation that's doing well, you're certainly not going to have a larger church community that's going to be healthy and prosperous. So I'm going to share with you a few of my ideas about how we can develop a church community, how we might be able to go about that. All right, so that's the goal tonight. Now, Nathan 
mentioned three requirements of a multi-generational church several days ago. They're worth mentioning again. I really liked the three items he brought forward that summarized it in a, in a succinct way. He said, look, if you want a multi-generational church, you need to have more than one family. The church and the home are not the same. The church and the home are not identical institutions. Second, if you want to have a multi-generational church, you need a single leader, leader in charge of the congregation. A single leader in charge of the congregation. A, a, a man behind whom the congregation can, can follow and, and, and hopefully respect, and hopefully he'll be able to earn their respect, and they can follow his leadership. And difficult challenges and decisions can be uh, largely directed by his wisdom and insight. All right, and then hopefully... Hopefully you really need a building. You need a building for worship. Gathering in homes historically is the exception. It's not the rule. And while we don't worship the building or the facilities by any means, a multi-generational church is going to have a building to, to, in which they gather in, um, which is their, their central place of worship. <clears throat> now, so if that's a congregation, if that's a church, the next natural step in, a, in, a, in, this, in this growth, the next natural step in dominion is a church community, all right? So we have a church, and we want to make it a church community. Well, what does that mean? What is the distinction between a church and a church community? Now, you could just say a church and say a, a, a city or a town in which there are a number of churches. Well, that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a number of competing churches, any competing congregations in a town of 10,000 people or whatever. I'm talking about a church community. What does that mean? All right, I'll, I'll do my best to, to convey my ideas here. Think of it more like a, a village, all right? A village. I like the word enclave. It's kind of a cumbersome word. But it's a, if you know what it means, it's a really great word for our time. Because an enclave is a, is a community that has a set of values that they hold in common in the midst of a great ocean out there that is very different. And that kind of describes where we're at. There's this great ocean of, of, of our nation in the Western world that has left the old values. And here we are kind of feeling a little isolated, and we need, a, we need a, our own community. We need to be an, an island in this ocean of heathenism and agnosticism and a dozen other isms. So an enclave is a good word to describe a church community. But a village, we haven't, I haven't used that word before to describe this concept, but that's a pretty good word too. Because a village... Think for just a moment. Let me just comment briefly on, a, on villages. And when you hear the word village, what do you think of? Well, you, you might think of this. You might say, you know, that kind of reminds me back in those olden times and medieval days you had knights riding around and fair maidens that they were rescuing from dragons or whatever conjure mind comes up, conjures up. And you think of the village. Oh, you know the village in some fairy tale you read about. Well, what was a village really like in those days? Well, let me tell you what a village was really like in those days. It was a small town, 
and had one thing right in the center, typically. You know what had right in the center of town? It had a church. How many churches? One church. It had one church right in the middle of town, and everything was connected to that church. But you see, it was much more than just a congregation. It was a, it was a village. And if you had four or five hundred people living in the village, when it was the day of worship, pretty much everybody came. But they had many, many more functions than just gathering once a week for a worship service. See, so that's what we think of when we think of a congregation. We think of a congregation as people that just come together for worship and then they go home. And they come together for worship and then they go home. And between the worshiping, one week to the next, they probably don't see each other much. They don't interact with each other much. That's the difference between a church and a church community. Because in a church community, you go home, but you are still there. Because the homes are all round about in a village. All right? Now, we'll kind of play with these things. We don't live in the 1400s anymore. So times have changed. But we got to play with these ideas and work with them to see if we can cultivate some kind of a vision for our own future. Now here's one of the things I'd like to throw out for you. You may not have really thought about this, but such type of these communities, if we call it a church community, an enclave, or a village, those communities actually are the way most people have lived in most of human history. In fact, we, don't, we can think of just this country. If you roll back the clock just 100 years, it is the way most people lived. They lived in that particular social structure. Now remember, I've given you three social structures, haven't I? The family, the congregation, and a church community. Now it is within the context of a church community that most people in history have spent most of their lives. And in fact, most people in our nation once lived in a church community. That was the larger social structure. Even if you lived in a big city. Did you know that? Because in big cities, John Pennington, you once lived in a city, and you can, are probably got enough age and wisdom to confirm this. In big cities, they have something called neighborhoods. And those neighborhoods... Believe it or not, for us rural people, we don't think of that in terms of a city. We think of a city of a million people, just a big blob of people, all, you know, just... But it, they don't function that way. Really, do they, John? They function in neighborhoods, and the neighborhoods have distinct boundaries, and, and you really don't leave your neighborhood very often. You live in your neighborhood, and your neighborhood, that, that, that's your world, that's it. And yes, there's another neighborhood slammed right up next to it, but... As in terms of interacting, it might as well be 40 miles away. Yeah. You've got your neighborhood. Now, that's, there seems to be something psychological, actually, about this. In fact, sociologists have talked about this phenomenon, about how many people you can actually get to know and remember who they are without beginning to forget all the others you already once knew. They begin to drop off the other end. How many social interactions can you maintain? A typical person. And it turns out it's not an infinite number. You can't keep track of three or four thousand people. 
You can't remember all their names. You can't keep up with all the relationships and all the things. You, you, it's just too much. It turns out that the typical average person is between about six and 800 people. And when you try to get to know more, you start to lose them at the other end. <laughs> all right. Now, I'm kind of drifting a little off topic. Not too much. But what I'm trying to convey to you idea is this sense of a church community is, is a relatively, it's, it's bigger than a congregation. It has more functions than a congregation. And it is, but it is a clear social institution, a social structure that seems to be connected to the way we think and the way our brains interact. And it seems to have a long, long history in, in, in world history. And in a few minutes, we're going to go to Ruth and we'll talk about this a little bit more. But meanwhile, what are the marks of a healthy church community? Now that I've tried to convey to you my idea of what a church community is, what are the marks of a healthy church community, or an enclave, or a village, or whatever word you'd like to utilize? I've got four marks that I'll share with you. Number one, you've got a collective value set. You have a set of values that you all share in common, right? That's the first thing, and might be the most important thing. You have a set of values that you all share in common. Now, you obviously don't believe everything exactly the same and don't agree on everything always the same. In fact, there's probably many things you can find to squabble about. But there is a core set of values that you all hold in common. And historically, these would all emanate from a single parish church. Amen. They emanate out from that parish church. You see, that, 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 that congregation, that assembly of believers, that, and, 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 and the, the leadership that is embodied there is the source for what flows out of that. All right? Number two. So your first mark of a healthy church community is a set of collective values. And these are religious values, really. Amen. They're biblical values in our case. And we have our own set of values that we hold very dear that set us very much apart. Because we don't believe in race mixing. We do believe that we should gather together. We believe that we're Israelites. And, and so we have a series of core principles that bind us together pretty tight. Amen. That make us very distinct. So our first mark of a healthy church community is that collective set of values. Number two, roots. Roots. It's a place where you come from. It's a place that most leave only reluctantly, or if they have some compulsion that they need to leave, although there's always a few that are joyful to skip out and be gone. But in general, you have roots. Most leave that community reluctantly if they must leave and perhaps more most important it's a place you can come back to you have a place to go home to it is home it is home you have roots real roots next the third mark you have kinfolk and friends that extend from one generation to the next, that form a network, that form a web. Typically, you may have quite a few kinfolk. Immediate family, Marians, 
then you've got friends or friends that become Marians. And you have friends that feel like they're Marians, but they're not. They're just long-term friends. <laughs> but they form this network. They form this web. They form this, this series of interconnections in such a way that your life, on the one hand, you feel a little locked in. You feel like you can't move because you're connected over here and here and you got all these people that you're that is counting on you and looking at you and watching you and and you might feel a little trapped and a little stared at and like I want to be free of this web <laughs> until you need the web. That's it. And boy when you need the web then you're glad you've got all these connections. You're glad you got the cousin and the friend and the lifelong person that you've, your neighbor and this and this and this and the Marian over. You're glad for this intricate web of interconnectivity that holds you together. It's a network. And that network can be very, very valuable. And last, at least of the four marks I've got, there probably are more. But the last one I'll give for you, throw out for your contemplation, is economic inter dependency among the members of the village, the church community. There's economic interdependency. Now you can imagine this if we roll back the clock to, oh, let's say it's, uh, oh, let's just say it's, you roll back the clock to 1880 and you live in a little village in, I don't know, Iowa or Kansas or Kentucky or wherever. And we have this mental image of what that might be like. A little bit like, I don't know, when I was a kid, I used to watch Little House on the Prairie. It's a little bit like Walnut Grove. Yeah. All right? How many remember Little House on the Prairie? It ran for, I don't know, eight or ten seasons. The first seasons actually were pretty good. Then they got into pol politics and stuff, but had a little agenda. But think about, think about a little village kind of like that. You had, uh, it was a very, it was actually a very nice world you had up. In that case, in that particular program, you had a, a father who knew, knew what he was doing with his family. He worked hard and he protected his family. And he was the ultimate problem solver. At the end of every episode, he had, he had the solution. <laughs> you had a mother who was happy to uh, be his helpmeet and stay at home and guide the children and, and, and help her husband. You had your, uh, you know, you had, you had, we had a church. You only had one church. You had a school. That actually was in the church during the week. Did you ever notice that? For those of you old ulcers. And, and no, nobody thought that was weird. You used the, the church building on, 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 on the weekend. And then Monday through Friday, they all went to school right there in the church. And so, it, 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 and, and in terms of this economic interconnectivity you had over here, you had a lumber guy, you had a blacksmith, you had this, you had this, you had the mercantile. And everybody was interacting economically. They didn't all always get along. You had people there that irritated you, obviously. But everybody managed to come together if there was a crisis. And that was your world. That was your, that was your village. That was your, it was, in a sense, it was a church community. All right? Now, all, that, the reason that this is kind of an important idea is because so much of this has been stripped away and is lost in our time. And... Uh, I'm going to come back to this business about this economic interdependence in a little while, but I just need to get that out there, that there's an economic independence that's an important feature of this concept I'm trying to share with you, this, this church 
community, there's economic independence. It doesn't mean that there's not economic activity outside. It just means there's a lot of economic activity inside. A great deal of it. All right. So with a few of these thoughts out there, let's go through the, go to the book of Ruth. And let's take a quick look at the t- little town of Bethlehem. So we'll go back to your Bibles, if you would, please. <coughs> Turns out Bethlehem has a long history. Does anybody know when the town of Bethlehem had its origin? Well, it turns out the town of Bethlehem goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 35, verse number 19, you might recall this little tidbit. Jacob was traveling from one place to another in his sojourns around the land of Canaan. And it says in verse 19 of Genesis 35 that Rachel died. And she was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is... Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave. That is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. Now the book of Genesis, they believe, was written by Moses. And writing hundreds of years after this moment in time, Moses says, Rachel died. This is where she died. And that spot became the town in Moses' day, was known as Bethlehem. And her grave marker is still there today. Well, that's the origin of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem always was a small town. It never became a big town. We might think it may be one of the best known little towns, but it always was essentially a village, a small place. Now, we know it well Because if we go forward in time, of course, Bethlehem is the town where Jesse, the father of David, lived. And it was David who came from the little village of Bethlehem. And there are many episodes that we could talk about. But to tell you how how rooted people were in this little town of Bethlehem, now many hundreds of years had passed since its origin, but by the David's time... David had many adventures. We all know about David's great adventures, right? Well, how many remember this adventure? David was being chased around by King Saul, and he was with his mighty men, and they were after him. Do you remember the story where David said to his mighty men, Oh, here we are on the run, and we're hiding in caves, and out in the timber, and in the woods, and sleeping with, you know, we don't have much to eat, and I'm always thirsty. And then he looks down, he says, Oh. Off in the distance, there's my little hometown, Bethlehem. I'd sure love to have a drink out of that well. That well that I grew up on. Oh, I remember the days when I would just go down to the well and pull up a bucket of cool water. Wouldn't that be great? And he's just casually, he's just apparently casually talking to his, friend, to his, his fellow soldiers. And three of his soldiers, three of his mighty men get together and say, hey, we'll help him out. So, well, it turns out King Saul and his soldiers were down there, and they had to go down to Bethlehem, and they had to fight their way in. And all, all, you know what they were fighting for? A bucket of water. So they fought their way into town, got a bucket of water, brought it back to David, and said, we heard that you wanted to drink out of that well. That's how much they loved David, how much they admired him, how, how, how deeply they admired David. Have a drink. 
<laughs> and Dave was like, guys, I didn't really, you know, I was just kind of talking, you know. I, he, but he, he, he valued it so much that he said, I'm going to pour it out as an offering to the Lord. And he wouldn't drink it. He poured it out as a, as a drink offering to God. Now, that isn't exactly relevant to our topic tonight, except to show that David had a great attachment to his hometown. He had roots that he wasn't about to forget. And an attachment like that is to be highly envied, to have roots like that. That's something that maybe most people don't have, to say, this is my hometown. This is my place. You know what Job said at one point in his long dissertations? Just a little aside comment. He's talking about how his life would end and he said, you know, I'm going to die in my nest. What do you mean by that? He said, this is my place. Good or bad? This is my place. I'm going to die in my nest. Now, the story of Bethlehem is, has, there's a lot more we can say about this town. But to get a sense of this little town and how it interacts and how, how a little town like this can function, how a village can function, how it has its, these, these dimensions that I've been trying to describe, let's go back to the book of Ruth. Because it turns out that the, the story of Ruth is the story of Bethlehem. Now, we've already read the first few verses. And most of you, I hope, will remember the story of Ruth reasonably well. But let's just touch base with that, and let me recap a little here. So Naomi and her husband, they came from the town of Bethlehem. There was, it says, the text tells us, a famine. And so they moved away. Didn't have enough to eat. They didn't really want to go, apparently, but they moved away with their two sons. So they moved to the land of Moab. And there in the land of Moab, her two sons get married. And then as time passes, her husband dies. Their two sons die. And she decides, <clears throat> there's nothing for us here in the land of Moab, so we're going back home. One of the daughters decides to, re rather daughters-in-law, one of the daughters-in-law decides to remain in the land of Moab. But the other one says, no, I'm going to go home with you, Naomi. I'm going to stick with you. And that's Ruth. So Ruth and Naomi go home. They go back to Naomi's hometown, back to this little village of Bethlehem. And that's where we let off in our reading. Now, I don't have time to go into this as an aside, but whenever you read in the book of Ruth the word Moabitus, I believe that's a geographic term, not an ethnic or racial term. Amen. So I don't have time to go into all of that. So for, for now, you'll just have to take my word for it that Ruth was an Israelitish lady, and that is a geographic, not an ethnic or racial term. All right. Set that aside, like I say. But let's move on. There are internal clues in Scripture, and then there is the geography and history which we could go into, but we won't, won't do that. Meanwhile, though, let's pick up the story of Ruth. It tells us in chapter 2, then, <clears throat> let me read a couple of verses out of chapter 2 for you, all right? So I hope you have your Bible open. Let's, let's read a little bit of Ruth. The story of Ruth is in, it's a, it's a wonderful story, like many, in Scripture. Let me read a few verses from chapter 2, starting in verse 1. 
It says, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So they get back to Bethlehem, right? And they're back to Naomi's little house. Apparently they have a little house to live in. It doesn't talk about them have struggling with shelter. But they don't have any food to eat. And these two ladies are dirt poor. I mean, they're poor. They've got, they've got very, very little. They've got nothing to eat. And Ruth, here's a clue. She knew about the law of gleaning, described in Leviticus chapter 19. And Ruth says, how about if I go out and I'm going to glean in somebody's field nearby? Naomi says, good idea. You're young and spry. Get on out there. Verse 3. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. So she accidentally came across a field in which it was lawful to follow the harvesters and pick up the little bits of grain that they missed. And she would scrounge around in the dirt and put them into her basket. All right. She accidentally came across a field that belonged to Boaz, who was the kindred of whom? Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's husband who had passed away. Verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. All right, came from the little village to the field just outside the village there. And said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz to his reapers that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And then the servants say, Oh, that's, that's this new girl who showed up in town. That's the new girl in town. Apparently her name is Ruth. So here comes Boaz out to check out how the harvest is going. And lo and behold, his eyes spies on this young lady. I, maybe Ruth was very beautiful. I, the Bible doesn't really tell us. You kind of get the sense that she probably was. And he spies her and who's that gal? Well, that's this, the new, new girl in town here. Now, if you keep on reading, which we won't do, Boaz was apparently impressed with her. An immediate impression. <laughs> and he says to the reapers, hey guys, as you go along harvesting, I want you to kind of on the sly leave extra on the ground for Ruth. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> yeah, all right, if you say so, boss. <laughs> so they're reaping along, and so Ruth comes along, and by the time the day is over, and he says, oh yeah, by the way, make sure, and he talks to Ruth. If you, if you, by the way, he introduces her himself. And he says, Ruth, you know, if you get thirsty or anything, you, just all, you can just get a drink over here where all the, my workers are working. And, you know, so he's, he's getting, he, she caught his attention, that's for sure. All right, well, so <laughs> the story continues. Uh, Boaz seems to be very interested in Ruth. <clears throat> now, we can stop right there. And I'd like to just give you a couple of a sense of what we've already learned about the little town of Bethlehem just this far into the story. 
Number one, Naomi was blessed with roots. You see, when times went badly in Moab, Naomi had someplace to go back to. Now, ask yourself this, especially you young people, you that are young, and you've got your life ahead of you, and you think about where you want to go, and what you want to do, and how you want, and you're trying to sort things out, and you say, do I have, you know, if things really kind of fall apart in my life, do I have someplace I can go back to? Do I have roots? If things go badly wrong out there, do I have roots? Do I have someplace I can go back to? I hope you do. Many people do not. And that's a pity. Now, I don't mean simply... When I say roots, I mean you have roots that have a network. I mean, I don't just mean your mom and your dad. That's not what I mean. When I say you've got someplace to go home to, yeah, you may have mom and dad... But you've got cousins, and you've got uncles, and you've got friends. You've got people you've known your whole life there. You have, all kind, you have a network you can go back to if you ever left. Do you have really have roots? Now, Naomi had roots, and she turns out she needed them. Now, part of that roots, part of that then, of course, was this extended kinfolk, this network. Because it turns out now, if we continue in our story... If we go on back and Ruth reports home, so we won't read about it, but at the end of the day, Ruth has got a whole big giant basket full. Hers is probably groaning, it's overflowing, and all the other gleaners have this little bitty basket full, but Ruth's is enormous. (laughs) And she struggles home with this basket full, and she reports back to Naomi and says, well, I had a pretty good day. (laughs) Turns out I ended up in Boaz's field. And Naomi says, hey, that's a great development. <laughs> she says, you did, I'm related to that guy. We've got some, something good is happening here. I can see from that full basket that this has promise, <laughs> young lady. Now, we don't know if Ruth was picking up on all of this yet. She might have been a naive young lady. But Naomi perceived what was happening. All righty. Now, it's interesting as we continue in the story of Ruth, we could look a little further, and I I do want to do this. I hope we can get through this. You begin to see as you read through chapter 2 and chapter 3, this whole business of gleaning. Now, gleaning is an unusual custom. It's something that's pretty kind of odd and foreign to our our world. But it talks about the gleaning here that she did in chapter 2, and you see... Um, that, that there's some economic in, interdependence in the city of Bethlehem. Because you know what? Ruth wasn't the only one gleaning, was she? There were other people gleaning, and they were following the reapers as well. And this was an institution that God had established to help the poor. The poor didn't get it for free, by the way. The poor had to go out and work for it. All right? They had to do something to get that food. They didn't get an awful lot, but they got something, so they didn't starve. Well, let's jump forward in our story. We're going to skip chapter 3, but I'll just summarize for you. Naomi gives Ruth some 
advice. She says, you know, Ruth, I think you need to get to know this Boaz a little better. And I think it's time for you to take some aggressive action. She says, Boaz is a really great man. He'd be a really wonderful catch for you. Really help me out too, she's thinking. We'd make a wonderful catch for you. Solve our problems real well if we could hook this guy. So he said, I want you to go to the harvest barn where it's harvest season and these guys are working late every night and they usually sleep in the harvest barn. I want you to go lay down on his feet after he falls asleep. I want you to go find him, go wander through the barn. When you find Boaz, just lay down at his feet and sleep if you can. And he's gonna, after a little while, he'll probably wake up. And when he sees you, then you just, you know, have a little chat, play it natural, just see what develops. <laughs> and Naomi says, I think something good's going to happen. <laughs> well, so it works out just the way Naomi planned. Ruth goes and lies down at his feet, and he wakes up, he sees her, and he's like, whoa, whoa, this is quite a surprise. He's not upset. <laughs> He says, well, I'll tell you what, you can stay for a little while, but if, before the sun rises and anybody sees you, you're going to have to go. Amen. But meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, I understand, let's see, you're, you're single, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, um, we're related, you, you know, I'm related to Naomi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they get this, and, and so he works up a plan. And he says, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go. He says, I'm going to seek to win your hand, and I'm, I want to marry you. Now, this is kind of an unusual courtship. It's not, I don't know that it would really work well in our time. <laughs> but it made sense to them. So we come to chapter 4. We find another little intricacy in this little town of Bethlehem. And the, the intricacy of their own social network and the intricacy of how they had their own set of values. Now, we've already seen one aspect of these set of values based on God's law, which was the law of gleaning. Now we're going to come to another set of values based on God's law in chapter 4. Now, I'm going to read a little out of chapter 4, because this is a little unusual. If you, haven't, if you don't recall the details of the story of Ruth, let's read chapter 4 some. <laughs> I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to read down probably to maybe 11 or 12. And I want you to just follow along with me. All right, are you ready? So here's, this is Boaz's plan in action now. You ready? Boaz got a plan. And, uh, uh, and, and Ruth, I don't know, her head might have been spinning a little bit, I'm kind of guessing. But anyway, here's Boaz's plan. It says, Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by and to whom he said, Ho, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. All right, you get the idea here. Boaz is in the, 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 the gate. The gate is the place where legal transactions occur. It would be in our little villages, in our time, it would be like going up to the courthouse amongst where all the old men are whittling, if they do that anymore. <laughs> And he nabs the man he's looking for when he comes by. Because he figures he'll be by sometime today. Lo and behold, the fellow shows up, comes on by. He says, hey, sit down for a minute. Let's chat. Yeah. So Boaz and he begin to visit. 
And then he says he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And they sat down. So now he's got some witnesses to what's occurring. And he says to the kinsmen, Naomi, that's come out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elder of the people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Well, what's that mean? Essentially, Boaz says, look, Naomi's selling a piece of property, and because you're Naomi's nearest relative, you get first dibs. And if you want to buy it, buy it. And the fellow says, hey, yeah, that's a great idea. I think I'll buy it. Then Boaz says, verse 5, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon my inherit his inheritance. So Boaz says to him then, Well, if you want to buy it, go ahead. But wait, but I better tell you, if you buy the property, Ruth goes with the property. Ruth is it's a package deal. You can't get the land unless you take the girl. You got to take the girl with the land. Do you still want it? And the fellow says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it, lest I mar my own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself. I can't redeem it. This is if the man said, Well, I'd like the land, but I can't, I can't, I can't take Ruth on as a wife. Look, I, I've already... I've got a wife. I mean, if I go home with another wife, she's going to hit the ceiling and it's going to be bad. <laughs> you know, polygamy might be technically lawful in this, in, but not for me. <laughs> I don't know. So we don't know. We don't know exactly why he said exactly what he did, but he said, it's not going to work for me. <laughs> I can't redeem it. So that meant that Boaz... Evidently a single man here. We have no indication that he was anything but a single man. Boaz now is able to, to move forward. But they had one more little step that they had to do. Verse 7. And this is the, an, 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 a unique legal mechanism that was used in those days. Now, it was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things, that a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Well, that's a little bit of an unusual statute. In fact, it's, it is actually a statute in God's law. If we had time, we could read in Deuteronomy 25 verses 5 through 10 it describes in situations such as this that if someone passes up their legal opportunity to redeem a piece of property or to redeem something of value then they would take off the shoe and this actually has to do with the um, it has to do with a, 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 a lady whose husband died and then uh, there, the, the, the man that was the, the closest relative, usually would be considered a brother, would have the legal obligation to take her into his house and then raise up a child in his dead brother's name. Now, I know this sounds a little weird to us. It sounds a little strange. 
It's less strange in those days when people were living on the edge of famine often. Because if you didn't have a property and a man, you were in trouble. You were in big trouble. You would quite possibly starve to death because you needed to have land and work was hard, hard, and you needed to have a man who could lead forth in that hard, hard work in a tough, ancient world. So the circumstances of those days made it easy, you know, more uh, uh, palatable than it is to the modern mind. But nonetheless, that's the statute in Israel in those days from Deuteronomy 25. And it actually tells us that if a man chooses not to take this opportunity, or actually to fulfill this particular duty, then he would take off his shoe, and the lady, who's now feeling rejected, would spit on him. <laughs> and she, she would have the legal right, in publicly, to be able to say, Poo, spit on him, to say, you refuse to raise up seed to your own brother through me. Now, I know a lot of women are like, this is weird, but <laughs> that's the law, and it made sense in the, the world they lived in, that made sense. And it was a useful mechanism, it was a good mechanism. So, and back to our story. If we keep reading, and I guess we really don't have time to read too much further, so I'll just sort of summarize things here. So Boaz says to the elders and the people, your witnesses this day... And uh, so Boaz goes through all the legal mechanisms and everything, and everything works out happy and great. The end of the story is that Boaz marries Ruth. They have a little boy, and, the little, and, and, and Ruth is so pleased to let Naomi, her mother-in-law, raise up this little boy. Because so Naomi's older, uh, this older lady now has an offspring that is her kinfolk. And it turns out that little boy... <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> turns out to be Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. So it's a wonderful, um, it's a wonderful story. But for our purposes tonight, what we're, what we're trying to do is to, to see how Ruth is a book that illustrates the value of a church community, or a community that has this central core values, that has this, we, we have the family, we've got all right, there's, there's family interactions, but you've also got this, this, this set of values that we could call, a, a, it'd be likened to a church, likened to a congregation of believers, but you also have this community, this larger community that's bound together, and that's the town of Bethlehem. Now, <coughs> with what little time I have left, I want to try to talk a little bit about how we can take steps to think about how we can move forward to recreate the type of communities, church communities, that would be useful for us in the difficult times that we might have ahead. And we don't know how difficult, we don't know what, we don't know what the, what the future was going to bring. But we do know that we'll be better prepared, I think we'll be better prepared, if we have our church community that we can rely upon in such a circumstance. More than just an assembly of believers that we meet with once a week, but a community that has this web of interconnectivity that is social, that is economic, that we can, you, we can rely upon. All right, so let's move on. We've got to move quickly. 
there are people who say, well, now, you know, we really don't need, in the virtual age, we really don't need what you're talking about. Why can't we just have a virtual village? A virtual church community. We'll just interact with each other on, you know, I don't know, Twitter or whatever, or YouTube and so forth. Why is that not going to work? Well, it turns out that proximity matters. Geographic proximity mattered then, and it still matters now. I don't have time to go into all the details about how this is true, but it gives us a couple of things. Number one, I'll just say, throw this out. Number one, the geographical proximity forces you in a face-to-face manner to learn to get along. It compels you to communicate in ways that are more civilized. (laughs) And so it forces you to get along. Second, it gives you the kind of rapid assistance that you might need. All right, so how do we recreate a church community? How do we build a village, build an enclave? How do we go about that? What kind of steps do we need? And when I go through these now, I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to move to this assembly right here, here in Shell City. We can't all have the same one. But we need to all be thinking. We need to all be thinking. Because remember what I said at the beginning, I'm thinking in terms of a 25-year plan. So if you think you've got 25 years of life left in your body, try to imagine where you'd like to be 25 years from now and where you'd like your family to be and your loved ones and your friends. Try to imagine where it would be good for you to be and what you can do now to go from here to there. Because if you don't have a, you're not going to get there if you don't aim for it and have a vision, a plan, a purpose, and a function. You got to, you got to have a plan. You're not going to, you're not going to hit the target unless you aim at it and you know what you're aiming for. All right. So, one of the first things I said was we have to, we have to select a place. We have to develop our long-term plans by forming roots. All right. You've got to form roots. Not a lot of time left, but I'm going to, I might go a couple minutes over. What time is my watch say? Oh, it's not even nine o'clock. That'll be okay, won't it? I'll go just a few minutes over. Just a few. All right. So you need to select a place. All right. Now that's going to take a lot of deep thinking and a little planning right there. Now I'll just tell you this story real quick about how I selected this place. Uh, some of you have heard this story, but some of you haven't, and, and I don't tell the story to brag. I just tell the story just as just, just my story and how I got, to, got here and how I planned, and, and, it, and it worked out. So when I finished college, I was certified to be a teacher, a high school teacher, and I was eager to get my first job at a public school. And so I thought, well, okay, where would I like to live? I, you know, I thought, you know, uh, I think I'd like to be part of that congregation up there at Shell City. Now, this is back in 1980. Nine, 1988, late 1980s. So going back 30 some years. So I said, back in the 80s, I said to myself, as I finished college here, I would like to be part of that little congregation in Shell City. So I said, I want to live close enough so I can be part of it. So I got out a map and I drew a giant circle on the map and I identified every public school within what I thought would be a suitable driving distance so I could be here every weekend. So here's my circle on the map. I then got a list of every public school that was inside the circle. There was 150 schools. 
I mailed every one of those schools, requested an application. It took me about three months. Now, I'm, this is like six months before it's time for the job search. But I spent the next three months typing out 150 applications. And then at one strategic moment, I went to the post office and mailed 150 applications to every public school in this, in this circle. Now, in the 1980s, those of you that are old enough to remember, you might remember, Jamie. You're almost as old as I am. Jobs were not as easy to come by. And I was worried about finding a job. Well, out of 150 applications, I got two phone calls. And I got two interviews and one job offer. And I took it. That was my plan. And it worked out. But you see, it, I had to really try. I had to really try. It took a, listen, let me tell you, it took a long time to type out 150 applications in 1988 on an electric typewriter. Roll it in. Now the first, after about five or six of them, the questions were all the same. They're all very similar applications. So I did get a little faster. But you got to have a plan. And, and if you want to be part of something, you've got to visualize where you want to be in the future. Because if you just say, I'm just going to kind of let it happen, well, not much is going to happen. If you're just waiting for something to happen, something will happen, but not as good of something. All right? Can you hear me? Yeah, something will happen, but it won't be as good. All right? So you've got to work. You've got to plan. You've got to have a purpose. You've got to have a goal. All righty. Now, once you find your roots and select your place, you've got to stay put. You've got to stay put. You've got to stay there. And then you begin to build a network of kinfolk and close friends. Close friends. Friends that you've known for years, decades. I've known Steve Middleton for decades, haven't we? Steve Middleton was in my wedding. So, you know, both of us have had our ups and downs. And here we are. And here I intend to remain, and I believe Steve does too. So, that's the next step. You've got to develop this kinfolk, this network of kinfolk and close friends. You've got to foster collective values. Now we've got to go to our values. We've got to have, we've got to have, and, and this for us, this means theology. It means we've got to have a, we've got to have a set of theology that we cling to, that holds us together. A belief system. Core belief system. And that's going to involve, in this church community now, it's going to involve a spiritual leader, a pastor. Someone that can direct you in these in the theology. You adopt the theology. You can't have multiple theologies. And if your idea is to go to an existing congregation and say, I'm going to fix their theology, you're going to get nothing but trouble. So if you think, that's not the theology for me, I'm going to fix it, don't go. Go somewhere else. Find another place that will fit better. 
All right. Now, there's a lot that could be said there, but you've got to get behind your leader. Your leader needs your support. He needs you. You need him. So you get behind your leader. Can't have two leaders. Can't have five leaders. You can have a leader with assistants and a leader with helpers. But you really got to have a single, a single pastor that, that you can get behind. So you have a you don't have division. Okay? Can't have division. Alright, now I'd like to talk just a couple of minutes with um, about this economic interdependency. Because the economic interdependency is a, is a real important feature of the distinction between a church and a church community. Now this is, is a big step. It's a complex step, and it's one that I, I don't know that I've wrapped my mind around at all. But I've got a few ideas. So I want you to listen to a few of these ideas to, to develop economic interdependency within a church community, a community now that's got a church at its core so that it can prosper and grow. <clears throat> Number one, if you want economic independence, interdependence, and if you want an internal marketplace, did you hear what I just said? An internal marketplace where I buy from you and you buy from me and everybody, imagine, go back to our little village in our mind. You got a village blacksmith and a village shoemaker and a village feather Fletcher or whatever Fletcher feather people did in medieval times. <laughs> fix them on arrows or whatever. <laughs> you got a village fishmonger and so forth and so on. All right. So you got an internal marketplace. Well, how is that going to work? Well, one of the things I think you need to have is you need a variety of occupations. All right, now listen to me. This is important. You need a variety of occupations. Can't all be carpenters. Well, you could all be carpenters, but there's going to be consequences that aren't necessarily all good if everybody, if all the men are carpenters. If we got all carpenters and no Fletchers and no shoemakers and no blacksmiths, you're not going to have a healthy, interdependent economic unit. Now why do we need to have a variety of occupations? A variety. The wider the variety, the better. I shall repeat that. The wider the variety, the better. Why? Because, first of all, if you don't have a variety, then you can't buy and sell if you don't have somebody doing that thing in, on, internally. You've got to go outside for that. But it's more than that. You're going to have competition. You say, well, I don't really think that's a problem. There's plenty of work for everybody. There's plenty of work right now, but there wasn't plenty of work in 1988. And believe me, if you've got a 25-year plan, it's not all going to be economic prosperity. There's going to be downtimes. And you don't want to be competing with your friend and your neighbor for the same job, for the same few jobs that are there. We don't want to be competing with each other. We want to be prospering with each other. All righty. So thus, we can then buy products and services from one another. All right. So that's an important idea. We want to have our own internal market. We want to buy products and services from each other. So we have to have a variety 
of services that are offered a variety of occupations. Now, carpenters are great. My dad was a carpenter. But we need more than carpenters. We need more than people in the construction industry. We need a variety of services. We need a variety of skills. Second, within this church community, you've got to be willing to buy those services. You've got to buy your services at market value. All right? At at least market value. Because some people have the wrong idea. They say to themselves, well, you know, I'm going to... My, if I'm buying from a brother, he has an obligation to give it to me at a cut rate. No, he doesn't. That's not correct, in my opinion. All right, you should pay him. You should be willing to pay him at least as much for his service as you would pay an unbeliever. You should not expect your brother to give you a deal. If he offers you a deal... Fine. But I suggest if he offers you a deal, you pay what you believe is the market value anyway. I suggest if he says, I'll give it to you at a cut rate because you're my brother, I suggest you say, no, I'm paying you full value. That's what you should do because he deserves it. He's paid an electric bill. He's got, we should, we've got to treat each other right. We've got to treat each other fairly and justly. So don't, ex- don't ask for favors, cut-rate favors. Now, look, if you've got a crisis in your life, probably he'd be very happy to help you. Yes. And, he, and then you can, sure, accept, accept the favor if you can't pay. If you can't pay, that's fine. But if you have the ability to pay, then you ought to pay. You, does that make sense? If you have the ability to pay, pay your brother what you ought to pay. That's how I see it, at any rate. Now... We need, to, um, <clears throat> we need to foster entrepreneurship. Amen. All right? Encourage entrepreneurship. So I need to talk to the men for a little bit. All males in this room. Adult men who have sons and sons who are not yet adults. And we need to have a little, what I would say is just kind of a little hard talking. And ladies, actually, maybe you moms need to listen in as well. We need to foster entrepreneurship that's going to lead to new businesses. Yes. All right. Now, not everybody has got the entrepreneur gift. But you might, you might, and if you try, you might discover you can develop the entrepreneurial gift. But one thing we really ought to have that may go along with this, we need ambition. We need ambition. Let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of you are familiar with the spelling bees? The national spelling bee. Anybody ever hear, ever pay attention to those national spelling bees? Have you noticed that for the last 20 years or so, almost every winner of the national spelling bee is an American of East Asian or East Indian descent? They're either from India or China or Japan or Korea. Where are all the white people? Why are they always winning the national spelling bees? Well, while you think about that, the answer to that question, let me ask you another question. 
In terms of average household income in the United States of America, based, broken down by ethnicity, why is the richest ethnicity East Indians? Look it up. The richest per capita household income in the United States of America are people who are Americans who used to live in India and now live here. And you might, that kind of connected to the reason why if you go to a hospital, you say, hey, there's this Rafsanjani doctor who's coming in to look at me. What's the deal there? Well, it's related to what I'm just, what we're talking about. So it turns out that East Indian Americans, Chinese Americans, Japanese Americans, and Korean Americans all have higher household incomes than white Americans. Did you know that? It's true. Now, my first question about the spelling bee is connected to what I just mentioned a moment ago regarding household incomes. It turns out it's a, it's, it, it's a little word called ambition. Now, they're not brighter, but they are more ambitious. They are very ambitious. Now, where does that ambition come from? All right, moms and dads, it comes from you. It comes from parents who have high expectations for their young people. It comes from parents who say, you are not going to play until you study and get this homework done well. And you better have it done well, really well. It is ambition. These are ambitious people. And it's, it's a cultural trait that goes back into the culture they left and they brought it with them to this country. And they said, we're in a country that has opportunities. And by golly, you, young man, you are not going to squander this opportunity. We didn't come cross an ocean for you to come over here and just fritter away your time chatting with your friends. One more story from my own past. When I was a youngster, um, my, my father had a rule about grades. It's a pretty simple rule. Now, most of you have, remember my dad. And you'll remember him, and you have an image in your mind of him being a, a very gentle, quiet, easygoing fellow. There's another Carl Benson you don't know. <laughs> because he had a real simple rule on grades for me and for my older sisters. And it, was, it went like this. When, you, when we get the grade card, if, you don't, if it's not all A's and B's, you're going to get whipped. That's it. That was the rule. If you get a C, one, you get whipped. And I, it didn't do any good for me to say, well, my teacher isn't a very good explainer. It didn't do me any good to say, my teacher is unfair. It didn't do me any good to say, it didn't, it did, he didn't care. He just whipped you. Well, I knew the rule, and I actually never got whipped, because I, I, I understood that he wasn't bluffing. I had one very close call. It was a B minus. <laughs> I got a B minus in ninth grade biology, and boy, I was sweating it. <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> I was afraid I was going to come home with a, with a, with a C on that grade card, and it turned out it wasn't. Um, but my father, now, I, I'm not suggesting you adopt that policy. I don't have that policy with my children. 
that I whip them. If they, and, 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 but what he saw, and maybe it's a little bit of a generational thing, <laughs> but what he saw is he said, look, I've got a son here. He's got a good mind. And it's his job to figure out how to be successful in the classroom. He, he's got a good mind, so do what, you ta- do what it takes, Sonny, to come home with a good grade. You, you figure it out. Don't bother me with any details. Just make sure you come home with a good grade. You've got a good brain, so figure it out. Now, I'm not asking you to be like that with your children. And as I said, I'm not with mine. But he had a set of, uh, he pushed me. He demanded a lot of me. He expected a lot. I got very few compliments. He doesn't, wasn't always patting me on the back. He was kind. He wasn't unjust or unfair. But he wasn't always, oh, you know, he wasn't a huggy, touchy-feely, you know, great job, son. And some of the things that I thought were great accomplishments, he didn't care about. I was on a high school basketball team. I was the, I was the captain of my team. And uh, we were a good team. We went to the district champion. We were district champions one year. And, if the, and you know, he didn't even come to a lot of my games. Because he, he told me many times, I don't mind you playing basketball, son, but look, that's not going to get you anywhere. He said, the only way that might help you is if you're good enough to get a college scholarship, you can go to free college. After that, other than that, I don't care one whit about your basketball. Now, I'm not against it, he said. You go have your fun, but make sure it doesn't affect your grades. <laughs> and so some, a lot of my games didn't even come to, and we were very successful. Because he saw what was important. Now, I don't hold a grudge against him. Now, my mother was different. She came to every game pretty much. <laughs> and that was nice. <laughs> that was nice. But you see, I'm telling you this because I believe that we ought to push our young people. Yes. We need to push our sons. We need to find out what they're capable of, discern with their capability range. Okay, so here's their range of capability. All right? And if you say, this is your range of capability... I want you performing up here, Amen. not down here. Right. You perform up here, and if you don't perform up here near the top of whatever your range of capability is, you're in big trouble with me. Amen. Now that we need, we that is why, that is why we have East Indians and Chinese and Korean and Japanese Americans succeeding, That's right. because their parents push them. They demand it. They have high expectations. Now, what's this have to do with a church community? It has to do with the church community because we have to have our sons have, su- have, have some measure of success in the economic area. Yes. And we need to push and encourage and foster high goals. Amen. Not low goals, right. high goals. What profession are you seeking? Why that profession? Why aren't you seeking another? Have you looked, considered this one? We need to be thinking and pushing our sons into professions, in occupations that will strengthen their future and the future of our community of which we are a part. And not simply just, well, we'll just kind of see what happens. I'll just graduate and look for a job. Just, you know, something will come along. That's not a plan. Now, I'm not trying to be 
unkind and judgmental, and I know there's a whole variety of circumstances in your home, and I'm not trying to beat up on anybody, or I'm just trying to encourage us to think in terms of this component of a healthy church community, this economic component, to encourage our sons, to press our sons a bit, to have high goals, have high ambitions, to be entrepreneurial, and to not just say, well, that's what Bill is doing, so I think I'll just do what Bill's doing, just because Bill's doing it, and that's the easy thing. That, that, the easy path isn't always the best path. All right, so I think I've kind of done enough in that area, and, and I really am running out of time here. Um, I guess I've run out of time. <laughs> but I, I'm going to conclude now. Uh, as we think about this, uh, every, every passing year, in my view, of all the things we've talked about, I just want you to leave you with this. Every passing year makes having a church community, beyond just a congregation, but a community now, more important, more vital. Because the world is getting harder and tougher and darker. Now, I don't know how hard and tough and dark it's going to get, but it's gradually just getting harder and tougher and darker. So the world is a tougher place now than it was 25 years ago in terms of many things. Right now, you know, economically, maybe not so. There's more economic opportunity now in recent years than there was in years gone by. But in terms of all the things that can damage us, values and the, the racial problems and the political strife and the world's getting to be a tougher place. And so creating this church community is, is more and more important as the years pass. So I hope, that, uh, I hope that we can think some of these ideas through, maybe find a little application and find a little way, ways we can encourage and exhort our children, our sons, and each other. And maybe we can make some progress and, and grow. And maybe we can, uh, more church communities can be developed that are likened to, likened to this small one we've got here. I, I hope to see more. But I think this is a pathway forward, and I hope that uh, we, can, we can do some good things. Thank you for your, your time and your patience, and I, I, I am so grateful for the privilege of, to be able to share these ideas. God bless you.